Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. This week, we're resurfacing an episode that originally ran late in 2021 and perhaps got lost in your holiday time busyness. It features Aaron Desner of The National in conversation with Julian Baker. Now, the main reason this one jumped to mind as something we should resurface for you this week is because I recently saw The National play, probably for the millionth time in my life, and it was, as always, astounding. They played a bunch of new songs, including one that's now streaming and features Bon Iver, and they were as energized and emotional as ever. Julian Baker, of course, is no slouch either. She released one of the best records of 2021 called Little Oblivions. And as you'll hear in this conversation, both of these people know what it's like when music tugs at your emotions, and they're not afraid to talk about it. Enjoy it again, or for the first time. So nice to see you. Yeah, it's so nice to see you again. I feel like I haven't seen you since like a field in Eau Claire or something, right? Possibly. Oh my God. Yeah. You've been doing a ton of stuff though. I guess the National has been not touring because nobody's been touring. Yeah. Our last show is in December 2019 in Portugal. And like, I remember thinking if this was our last show, this is a good one or something. I don't know why I thought that, but we have not played music since then, which is the first time in 20 years, you know. How does that feel? I think we're missing it, but, you know, there's so much wreckage from all the years. Good, like, not just wreckage, like so much joy and so many things we've done. But towards the end of that, we were running on fumes because we just hadn't had a break, you know. And everybody's, you know, had kids and life happens. And so in a way, it's been good to kind of like step away from it um, and get off the road. But I'm I'm jealous. I looked at your tour schedule and I was like, she's doing it. It's so... And also just this record is like, I just really want to see you play it. Who's on stage? I just am so curious because it sounds so like gigantic in a great way, like in a way that I find so beautiful and cathartic. Oh. I just want you to come here and teach me how to make it sound like that. Are you kidding <laughs> me? I would I would like for you to teach me how to make a record sound like one of your records, but maybe we'll get to exchange that one day. But so you said who's on stage. So it's wild. I don't know, to come back to touring after the pandemic in the way that we have has been incredible because for so many years I toured completely like alone or yeah. I performed alone and then there would be like a TM or like a merch person and then I performed with Camille Faulkner on violin for a long time and then Aisha Burns on violin as well but it was always like very sparse and now there's five people in the band it's me another guitar Calvin, who made the record with me, is playing bass and doing, cool. like, all of his crazy Ableton triggering stuff. And yeah. then Matt Gilliam, who is my friend from Memphis. We were in a band together for years when we were in high school. We've been friends for, Maybe. like, over a decade. And it's so beautiful to get to play music. Is he playing the drums or he's yeah, playing? Yeah, he's playing okay. the drums. And then Noah Forbes, one of my friends from Nashville, is playing keys. And everybody's just, like, really passionate. It's just like being on tour with a bunch of gear nerds. I guess that's oversimplifying it to say, like, gear nerds, but people who 
just genuinely love music and making sounds and making a show sound good. Yeah. And I can't even describe how much better it is to perform with other people on stage. I Once we started playing shows, <laughs> I was like, why did I do this alone for like four years? Like that was kind of a masochist move to just be the only person responsible for making sounds on stage. And then if something goes wrong, you're alone. I remember when you showed up in Aspen, Colorado, when we first met you and played with you. We loved your record, but I'd never seen you play live. And then it was so captivating to see you play. And I have to admit that I like whenever I, sometimes when I'm feeling blocked, I will listen to like different songs of yours just to hear. Cause the, I do like the minimalism of like being able, even on your new record, there's songs that I like, I'll listen to Crying Wolf or something like that. One of the more minimal ones at first, just to hear like you have this way of the ideas are so crystalline or something or so clear. And I, I love that about the way you used to perform, but I'm kind of curious to see this bigger cathartic kind of thing. And that arc is probably really interesting, you know, for your fans and stuff. No, I was a little bit apprehensive because it was difficult for me to trust the merit of the music I make outside of the gimmick of performing it alone. Like outside of the gimmick of having my piano and my guitar and all these instruments rooted through a single looper and doing like a choreographed dance to try to make everything happen on time. And like, it was scary. Like it's what I wanted to do. Yeah. To change, to have other people on stage and to make music that had less, I guess, self-imposed limitations. But it was also really scary because we've arranged several of the songs I hope tastefully, but from the previous records to be like, to have a little bit more embellishment with like auxiliary percussion and Noah doing some like synth sounds on them. I do fear disappointing people, but ultimately I feel like once I get on stage, like every night that I've gotten on stage, I don't know, I think it's apparent, like you can communicate a feeling of joy to the audience if you truly are happy to be there and be doing what you're doing. Yeah. And maybe that's something that, like, people will understand and value. As a music fan, I want to hear something different than what's on the record usually or something, like, come to life and or have mistakes or whatever it is. Like, that's humanizes it. But also, I think seeing you in different contexts is probably really interesting for people. Or I was just watched the YouTube of you playing appointments before we played, like, into it melted into Fake Empire. Oh, my God. And I was like, that was one of my favorite things that the band has ever done. Because it's almost like you get to DJ and, and play someone else's song, <laughs> which is better than your song. And you're like, I'm I'm like a really good artist also, but it was just you playing your song. And then all of a sudden it's Fake Empire again. We're like, oh, okay. But it was like a great, it was a great way to do it. It was beautiful. It was so beautiful. No, that was one of my favorite live collaboration moments of playing live music ever. That was so beautiful. Yeah. Then you got up with Big Grip Machine also and sang with us the next day, I think. And you were doing so much at Eau Claire, which is the whole idea of Eau Claire is just to bounce around. But I was so thankful because some people, they get that vulnerability that comes with 
sticking your neck out and trying things, putting yourself in awkward situations, sometimes it's hard to do. It's hard for anyone, but it was so nice of you. You were just like, sure. You know, like any idea you're like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll play, I'll play my song before, like on a platform in the middle of thousands of people before you guys play. Or, you know, oh, like God. you, you was, were so game. That was one of my favorite things that I think I missed about touring is getting to spend time intimately with an artist and their music. Like, it's different to watch someone perform every single night and see, yeah. like, start to pick up how they emphasize different parts of their songs, where they put the songs in the set, like what the songs mean to them as a performer. It's really yeah. neat and valuable. You've been producing a ton of stuff over the pandemic more because, I yeah. mean, in a much like, in a uh, much more scaled down way, I feel like. I also yeah. experienced that where like I wasn't focusing on performing. I like switched my brain completely into like living in my logic demos and trying to watch tutorials about like how to mix and produce things, especially with Big Red Machine. Like I was going to ask you, having both of those skill sets, like how much do you write in the room and how yeah. much do you let like piece songs together I feel like I've gotten good at both. Like I still have the discipline of trying to structure music in a way that I find compelling from the beginning. Because that's always been the way that I make national music or whatever music is like to try to make something that I would listen to without any words or melody, like any vocal melodies. Because that's generally I've been like a ventriloquist living through other people's voices, like inspiring someone else to sing has been what I've tried to do with Matt and tried to do with other people. Um, obviously now sometimes I sing myself, but there is something where you, when you write music that you can tell has a, you would know this too, like where you can feel like, oh, that is, there's something there and you know it. I still have that. But then as I've gotten better and more sort of facile with software and stuff, and I've seen other people work a lot and how, how Justin Vernon works or how John Lowe, who I, who I work with a lot, works. Like you start to see other people's tricks and it's funny what you can do. Like I'll, I'll make new songs without recording any instruments now where I'm just literally like manipulating things I've already done from the past or, you know, sure, like doing a lot of processing and stuff. But it's, I still think that the best thing is when you can actually sit down and play an instrument and like feel that it's, that an idea is there and is complete. But I, don't know, I've, I wanted to ask you, cause I feel like you, all, all three of your records are so beautifully recorded and produced. And I don't even know if you've started to produce a lot of other people's records or if you're interested in it, but I feel like you absolutely, that would be something really special or you have a lot to bring to it. That's I mean, a high compliment. Is it something that you're interested in? I guess is my question. Completely. And I didn't think I would be. I think I, man, it's been an interesting arc of like across the records that I've put out because the first record that I put out, I made in like three days with like yeah. free, free studio time. And the, arrangements of the songs were sparse out of necessity because they were informed by the 
tools I had at my disposal, which weren't a lot of tools. And then I toured that record for a really long time. And I think because of performing that record so long and being praised for it, I was like, okay, this is the type of music that is my skill and I should continue doing this. And then I made a deliberately sparse record even though I had more tools. Like I could have turned around and made full band drums, high production record. And I didn't because there was something attractive to me at the time about like the challenge of distillation Uh and trying to communicate the most with the least. But I also feel Mm. like, I don't know, that record to me sounds really like the second record that I put out, Turn Out the Lights, sounds really like glossy almost in a bombastic way and there's a lot of really dramatic ballady parts that I don't mm-hmm. know I felt like I was trying to make like I was young and I had yeah. just signed a record deal with a massive label and things were happening really fast for me and I didn't know what to do so I was just like obsessed with very Libra of me but I was like obsessed with the most idealistic like the best romanticized version of like an incredible song and I was really focused on songwriting and then at the end of the Boy Genius tour I in 2018 once we had put out that record I like took a lot of time off went back to school started making songs with Calvin who has worked with me on the last two records and who is a sweetheart Calvin Lauber And we would just make songs for fun and, like, send... They weren't for a record. They weren't for anything. We would just send songs back and forth and demos. And I started recording a little bit more and realized how purely fascinated I was with sounds. I think when I removed myself from the idea of trying to write a song with a profound message and then embody it as a performer when I was just working simply with manipulating sounds. It was cool. It reminded me why music brings me so much joy in the first place because it's fun and exciting to create. Um, And then I started getting interested in producing and I actually... I'm really excited because I produced... I've only produced one thing that's not my own music... And it was a couple of months ago, I went down to Memphis and worked on this record for a band called The Ophelias that I Uh love. They're incredible. Their songwriting is just so good. Everyone in the band is just such an interesting player. They make interesting arrangement choices. It was like the most fulfilling thing that I had done in a really long time. And I didn't know how I would be at it. Like, I don't know how you started producing, but I was really apprehensive because making decisions about my own music is easy because I feel entitled to. But when you're invited into someone else's world that is so vulnerable, like specifically with the Ophelias, like these songs are about deep pain and loss and difficulty. And when you're invited into that world, it seems really challenging to try to gently I don't know it seems uh like entitled to alter it but you're trying like you're trying to negotiate the balance to be honest that's what I would be interested about in terms of you as a producer because you're an artist 
that makes your own formidable songs. So there's so much there in terms of what you're making, but then you have the sensitivity when you, because of how you understand that process of like how vulnerable and difficult it is to actually finish anything or to, or to be honest in a song and say things that you want to say. Then when you go work with, you know, like you said, the Ophelia's you're, you're able to kind of come in without like a capital, you know, some producers, I feel like there's different kinds. Some come more from a technical background, some from a more musical background. Some people don't have a distinct identity as songwriters outside of it. So they, in a way, it allows them more freedom. I think you and I might be similar in the sense that because people know our music in other ways. Like if you produce something, like your fingerprint might be more recognizable maybe than someone else who doesn't. I learn so much every time I do it. And I can only really produce records when I feel like I could really help or if it's coming from a place of friendship. I, I don't feel like I do it just as a job or something. Sharon Bennett was the first record that I produced outside of the National. And that was literally just like Justin and Bryce and I had covered her song Love More in Cincinnati in 2008 or nine at this festival. Bryce has called Music Now. And and Sharon saw it and she, she like reached out and said hi. And then she just literally came over in Brooklyn to my garage and we just started tinkering around. We, we never really had a discussion like, hey, do you want to produce my record? It was more just like we worked together for a year and then made Tramp um, over, you oh, know, just so in between. I guess what my favorite thing about producing records is then you become the friendships you make and the way you become part of community, you know? It's like, it's the same thing with touring or whatever. I just realized that I think we saw each other at the Frightened Rabbit benefit or you know oh, tribute did. after yes. Oakler, um which was reminds me of like other records i've produced and and like community oh, and that's right because you, you did so, painting of a panic attack yeah yeah um so anyways i've been lucky to 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 produce lots of records now but it's funny because it still feels like each time you do it, it's like every time, you know how that feeling of like, no matter how many songs you've made, it still feels like you haven't made any at all. Oh my God, yeah. So um, I feel like even I'm sitting in like a f kind of fancy studio, but like, I don't really, <laughs> it's like, it's, it can be intimidating some mornings. You're like, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of the Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. They also make it easy to upload lyrics and metadata and to track your earnings and share them with your bandmates and co-writers. You can even snap on extras like Instant Share, which allows for easy collaboration. The DistroKid app makes it all a seamless experience that will save you a ton of time that would be better spent making music. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Head over to the App Store to download it. All bands and artists have jobs, right? Jobs they do like, others they don't. 
Times they're fucked up and they've had to face the boss with rosy cheeks and the tails between their legs. 101 Part-Time Jobs is the podcast where we hear those stories. I've had some killer guests on, like The Chisel, Chastity Belt, Real Estate, Kurt Vile, Mannequin Pussy, and so many more. If you subscribe to 101 Part-Time Jobs podcast, you'll be getting two episodes weekly. That's a promise. See you soon. I've always tried to tread this balance carefully of like, when you have the resources to, I don't know, build a crazy fancy studio in your house or like buy a sick piece of gear, like a cool microphone. I had this experience. I was like, uh, excuse me, I shouldn't swear on this podcast. I was like (laughs) screwing around on Logic for literally two years trying to like make little demos and stuff, but I wouldn't buy or install any plugins because I was like, I'm not a real engineer. I dropped out of audio school. I only know how to do live sound barely. And so I was like, I'm not going to buy these. And then I just like asked Calvin who, I was like, just shoot me some links for some things I could get. And I got like a handful of really interesting tools that were just like the basics. And it inspired, like, it made me more excited about recording because I had capabilities I didn't know existed. Um, And I was like, why did I deprive myself? Like, I didn't give myself tools because I didn't think that I had the skill for them, but there's no way for me to acquire the skill. And without the tools, do you, is that a, I, that might yeah. not be a question? That's just like a sentiment. We made the early national records in really difficult, sort of terrible technical situations. Like the alligator we made in my on a flooded old PV board in a basement in Red Hook, Brooklyn. But then we most of it we actually recorded in my sister's attic on like one little interface and the same with boxer we even we recorded in a better studio boxer but then we undid it all because we didn't like how it sounded and recorded it in my attic (laughs) which was also in brooklyn and um because we were kind of you know it was that that sort of like thing you don't want it to sound too good or something and or if it sounds too shiny or too then it's like sometimes when the record is too pristine it feels plastic or like trying too hard but so um but then after boxer i built the studio we built you know our little garage studio that i had in ditmas park brooklyn that had the same pattern on the walls um that that i have upstate but it was like this really it was 400 square feet and we we packed in there and made so many we made high violet and we made a lot of trouble finding me and we made like Sharon's Tramp record and like all the records that I made over between 2008 and 2016 or something. And honestly, it was the best decision. It didn't cost very much money. It was just, it was very DIY, but it was like, I finally had a space with enough stuff in it to really experiment and be creative. It was like an instrument, you know, like getting yourself yes. a new guitar that inspires you or whatever. And, um, and then when I moved upstate, I did it again, just on a bigger level where I blew up the garage into like kind of a church or a barn or something. And again, like then we made the first thing that we did was we made Sleep Well Beast in it. And then, you know, both bigger machine records and all the whatever Taylor records. There's something to be said for 
being in a space that inspires you. So if you're lucky enough to have the ability to do it, it's almost like self-care or something, you know, like I talked to Justin Vernon a lot lot about this because he's also built himself a place to work and he collects a lot of gear and, you know, so we trade ideas about that. And for me, it's literally like if I get a guitar or some, you know, instrument that is new, I feel like that that instrument has songs in it or has things in it that I can like pull out of it. Um, So sometimes when I'm stuck, it is literally like I just try to find a sound. We call them starters, like find something that, that like sparks for you. Um, so, but I was doing it, I was like listening, like preparing for this interview. I was, I've been listening to you and, and last night I just blasted your, I blasted the whole record, like really loud in the studio and I was playing along on piano. And like this morning I feel inspired. Like I'll probably, hopefully I won't like steal your songs, but it was funny because I was like, just the simple thing of like connecting to someone else's um, music in a beautiful space is sometimes oh, sure. all, you, all, all you need to kind of like break through. Honestly, I've done it with the national a ton. Like yeah. I was listening to uh, Easy to Find so much while we were making this record. And it made me think about things like, not like I would like lifting an entire lyric or like a riff, but I would be like, oh God, that snare sound is incredible. Yeah. Or like what if this guitar sound was uglier or like, what if it was dry? Like for the first time ever, I was just like, oh my God, maybe if I had just recorded a guitar track that wasn't soaked in five reverbs, that would sound cool. Yeah. But, um, and also like what you were saying with the having your own space in the house that I'm in, I have a little home attic studio with a, cool. with a two input interface and it's just like, baby studio but it's yeah. made all the difference to not live my life and like eat my dinner and sleep where all my work stuff is when you're home do you feel pressure to be creative or yeah. can you take the time to like fill the well or whatever just space out i'm a huge fan of ben Gibbard's songwriting and on the record thank you for today i did Like, I wrote a little talk house write-up about it, Uh and I read a lot of, like, interviews about the process of them going to the studio and writing every day as a practice. There have been times in my life where I felt pressured to create, where I felt pressured to do something meaningful or to get, like, significant work done on writing a song or editing a demo or just, like, skill grinding. But I think, A, that's just a symptom of living in a society that really prioritizes and values productivity and optimization, which I don't, I'm starting to be better about reminding myself that that's unhealthy. Um, Of course, that's spoken from a position of massive privilege. So, you know, like other people can't afford to do all that stuff. But I do try to, like, because I am afforded this great privilege of music being my job, I've had this feeling, it's kind of similar to what I was talking about when I made Turn Out the Lights and I was like, oh my God, this is my job now. Like I'm not like taking my summer break from college and getting off work to try to scrape together like a few hundred dollars at a show. Like this is my livelihood and I'm so grateful for it and I have so much respect for music and songs and the world of music and the people that listen to my music. 
I feel so much respect and awe and gratitude that I think it inspires me to want to sit down every day and try to make something, even if it's not good. When I'm not on tour, pick up my instrument every day or open up a session and do something. Because even if like the demo I'm working on doesn't end up becoming a song, it just goes into the oblivion of my hard drive. Or even if the riff I'm working on doesn't come to fruition as a tune, it's still exercising that muscle You know, it's making me, I want to do something every day that I'm learning to just value the process of if today all I did was sit down and try to teach myself how to set the attack and decay of a compressor better, then that's one more skill that I have to make me a better musician. I think I spend a lot of time exercising the muscle of like playing instruments and trying to find the kernels of things that I could turn into songs but maybe not enough time just finding new ways of doing things like you know i like the op1 is a good good example because that's something that i i have sort of mastered but it took so long and now it's now it's very easy for me but i almost don't use it because i've used it too much you know so it's almost like finding finding other um you know, now I've I've started to like spend more time just learning new um, software. Just like I never used Ableton until fairly recently, and then I've used it a lot for Big Red Machine. And it's kind of like a funny thing is you just think differently in it. You know, it's like loop based instead of linear. And I think um, not the way my brain really works. And and I've learned that a little bit from working with like trying to write songs with new people. Sometimes they're like, oh, can you just repeat that? four bars until I find something or just play that part, you know? And I'm like, well, what about, there's all these other parts or whatever, you know? Um, but as much as I can, I try to just enjoy the process of whatever it is and not think too critically about like, what is at the end of this tunnel that I'm in, even though it's hard because sometimes self doubt creeps in and you're like, what am I doing? I'm spinning wheels. I have no idea what I'm doing. But I think the only time I ever break through is when I'm not really thinking. And kind of what you said earlier about the way shaping sound reminds you of this joyful wonder that you felt in the beginning when you started playing music. And I think that's, for me, that's what I'm always trying to get back to is like this childlike joyfulness or something, you know, because sometimes it's hard to, you can lose the thread of, the simple joy of it. Just, wow, I'm so lucky. I'm just literally making making noise at home for, for a job. You know this probably better than anyone, better than I do because you've been doing it longer, but there is a lot of drudgery involved. Like it doesn't come with no cost. Like it does come with a lot of like actual physical and mental exhaustion. But I think specifically what you're talking about, uh, reminding yourself that you're lucky and tour being a different animal. I mean, in a way, I've felt like more healthy and stable within the chaos of tour than I have in the past two years. Yeah. Because it's almost like the, it's like, I keep, I use this um, metaphor ad nauseum, but it's just really apt for me. But like riding a bicycle slow, you start to get wobbly. Yeah. And when I'm like completely immersed in music and I wake up and we load in and we sound check and then everybody scrambles for food and then you come back and you play the show and then you're exhausted and you load out and you go to bed. I don't know, maybe it's being deprived of tour because of the circumstances of the last year or 
maybe it's just because now I'm touring in this different configuration and I have so many of my closest loved ones and people I really respect and admire around me, but the joy and gratitude is felt more salient and evident than ever, I think. That's so nice to hear. But also, like, what you were saying about the self-doubt, that, yeah, that happens to me all the time because I'm just, like, it's such a unquantifiable thing to do for a living that sometimes I'm just like, is this idea stupid? Like, it's impossible to tell if an idea is stupid or brilliant. (laughs) You're like, this could just be dumb. It's interesting that you were talking about using Ableton and new software because I, I feel like I just got a grip on Logic and now I'm having to use Ableton and it's completely different. <laughs> it's like learning a new language, right? Like, so when I, I studied Spanish for a really long time and I'm not good at it anymore. And then my part, my partner right now, it, she is German And so, like, I've been learning German. And as I go, like, I've found in my life that I am fascinated with words, like, in the English language, obviously, as a songwriter or poet or whatever. I don't know if it's pretentious to call myself that as a songwriter. I've loved words for a long time. And learning another language is like a protocol reset of communicating. And I think that's true in music too like with your software with your instrument like you I'm I'm sure you know this you play guitar and piano and like chord phrasings happen differently and they have like you communicate things in a different way that you adapt to your circumstances considering the instruments in the same way that you do when you're like you can't verbatim translate things into other languages you have to learn the intricacies and like the flow of how that language works. It's one thing I love about your music is you have a harmonic language or a sort of melodic harmonic language and rhythmic. Partly it's in the way that you play guitar, but then I think it's evolved over time. And I I think that's always interesting the way musicians sometimes have a fingerprint that you can kind of start to interpret what their language, what their signaling or something and I feel it's the sure. same with me I have I feel like I know very few things but I use them fluently or something you know I have like sure yeah these and I I, I sometimes don't make like radical shifts in harmonically or, or whatever it's it's more like I almost rock myself for me music is just almost therapeutic or something so it's like there's these patterns that I get obsessed with and I have to find new like new ways of expressing these ideas I'm not forcing it basically um well sure and I feel like that's related to what you're saying of just when you're learning anything it's like um it's good for your brain basically yeah I do love that you're learning another language and you're such a gifted writer I wanted to ask you I actually do want to ask you like there's one the first time this is months ago when I first um heard Little Oblivions, and I was riding in the car with my wife, and Stina is her name, and she's amazing. But she, we were sometimes when I'm driving, if I hear something and I don't want to forget it, she'll write it down for me. And she wrote, <laughs> she wrote down, "It's the mercy I can't take." From you know the last line of obviously you know from Song and E, and I, and I think it's just because it, like I heard when I heard that, "It's the mercy I can't take." My head, my the hair on my neck like stood up because it felt like um, it was one of those lines where I I hadn't fully processed its meaning within the context of the song, but I I felt like there's this feeling in it that felt very 
close to things I was going through or have been through in the past. I assume you play that song right now. Yes. When you when you sing it, is it does it still mean the same thing to you as when you wrote it, or is it now taking on like a communal feeling? You know that thing where people listen to your songs and it means something else to them somehow? Sure, and then you kind of allow yourself to see the song in a new context through somebody yeah. else's experience. I remember writing that song and I sent it to Phoebe and Lucy and I was like, this is the first song I've finished in a while that I'm really proud of. And it was an early song. It was like one of the first ones that I wrote that would be for this most recent record. Um, so I'm glad you like it. Yeah, that song is really special to me. And I don't usually speak about my music in this way because I don't like to praise or critique it. I just want to let it be what it is without adding another layer of self-analysis. But yeah, yeah. I feel like the songs I feel best about and I am most proud of months and years out from when I write them are ones that are born of like an impulsive or an intrusive thought that I then build a song of other true thoughts around yeah. instead of starting with a concept or a feeling or like a poetic theme of imagery and trying to construct it in an artistic way. There's a couple of songs that I've written that are like that, that are more conceptual, and I'm, they're okay songs, but I find the ones that mean the most to me and the ones that I can connect with and channel most, even live, are the ones that are just like born out of a conversation that I've had with a person earlier that day or yeah. something. Like, and I yeah. find that that's true of a lot of my songs, that a lot of, especially on this record, it's just like, all of favor is just about a conversation that I had in a car with someone. And so yeah. it's like, and I don't know, but, and maybe this, this is a big thing to hop into, but the risk with doing that though, is that I feel like I'm being an exhibitionist with somebody else's experience that is our shared experience. Like when I write about difficulties with my friends or really heartbreaking moments um, in my family, it's always like threading the needle of not being too obtuse or vague and being honest, but not like disclosing something yeah. that feels private to a person. But even though that's kind of my the entirety of my music, unfortunately. Yeah. I feel like you're you're writing or even that line, it's the mercy I can't take, reminds me somewhat of Matt's burning or the nationals writing sometimes where there's like iconic, relatable feelings that pop out, even if sometimes it can remain somewhat open to interpretation or vague. I had that experience with, at least with the Big Red Machine record, because some of it is like intensely personal in terms of what it's actually about. But I've tried to not be blunt, too blunt or too clear with certain things because I didn't want to hurt anyone or make it, you know, it's like so a lot of the songs that are more painful to me lyrically or what, what they're actually about. Like I tried to in some way blur them so that they're maybe about more than one thing or more than one person or, or sure. an idea of a person. I find myself doing that too. Or like distilling several experiences or several conversations down into a semi-fictionalized but accurate representation of an existing dynamic with a person. Yeah. 
for the song's sake. Like, sometimes I do feel bizarre harvesting. That's a weird word to use because I wouldn't say that I'm deliberately, like, harvesting experiences from my life to make music. It's more just, like, that is the way you said it was therapeutic earlier, which I feel like I talk about a lot and can be trite to say, but it's true. Like, saying that music is confessional or cathartic or therapeutic is like not a cliche because it is true that's why people make music hopefully in the first place sometimes they make music because it's fun you know like beat down hardcore bands that just make want to make a heavy record or like pop artists that just want to make a fun record but i mean even in stuff like that oh my gosh i could talk to you about this for hours because then i was going to ask you about like production choices like once like once you're beyond the pain of writing a song and constructing a song then it's like the execution of performing it you do yeah. things that make you happy like when y'all do the end of fake empire and it's crazy and heavy and there's like strobe lights and everybody's doing <laughs> trim guitar picking yeah. like that's fun <laughs> like you do it because it's fun it's awesome and the crowd I- is having fun and like I you did tr- realize that at some point that the the whole history of the national is basically like is basically somehow we we because the songs are can are mostly uh, in, you know quite dark or intense sort of ruminations on anxiety and like kind of you know all kinds of insecurities and and difficulty of loving someone or being loved and but then um live somehow it becomes this sort of communal catharsis that is quite joyful and we're basically just get to like make shapes with our guitars and sort of have a big big celebration in a weird way and you kind of but actually if you listen to some of what Matt's singing about in that context you know and sometimes when it's like if there's your there's like 80,000 people on a on a hill in Denmark or something and at a festival. And I find that really kind of so surreal that when you make these little, little fragile, ugly duckling songs, and then suddenly you're getting to, you know, be out in the bright lights playing them. But, um, but it's nice that you're feeling that again right now after not getting to do it for two years or whatever it is. Well, and maybe that's like the reciprocal part of like, that's the whole process of making art. Like you called them ugly ducklings. And I think that's true because you take like a feeling that's difficult. Like everybody experiences difficulty and like, this is a hot take and maybe a dark place to end it. But like most of life is suffering, right? That's very, I mean, that's very eightfold path of me to or four noble truths or whatever to be like, (laughs) life is suffering but it is like no matter like even get like people with more resources than god herself (laughs) are like still miserable in many ways and still have to do a lot of things that are discomforting and like disappointing and like there's no escape from it and so I'm going to use the word magical, even though it's corny. But the thing that is so, so like, magical about making art is that once you, like, it is the process of alchemy with bad feelings, turning them into something that can be celebrated. I feel like I used to go to a really dark place on stage because I was all alone singing about addiction and sadness and whatever, depression. And, like, now what you're describing, like 
being witnessed by people and like bearing witness to each other is something that I can actually be joyful about and celebrate. And it doesn't seem so backwards to me now to yeah. be like beaming, smiling in front of however many, like 800 yeah thousand people singing dark lyrics to you. Yeah. It's such a strange kind of part of being an artist. Like you're, you're navigating through and narrating intense, dark, emotional things in your songs, but then to, to, to actually watch it transform in a way into this joyful kind of communal catharsis you know so but that's what we've experienced also and I felt that about boy genius just this kind of like weirdly how cathartic those songs are even though they're also you know can be dark but I think that you know that's I think Justin and I felt that about Big Red Machine in a way I think we started it just to basically be able to have an excuse to improvise in in these collaborative festivals that we were doing, but then suddenly totally. songs, songs started to emerge and the songs you find, sometimes we'll start crying when we're making stuff or you like, there'll be a Aww, moment of tears yeah. and you're like, weird, this is this like weird emotional life raft we're on or something together, you know, yeah. which is kind of like songwriting. But I don't know when you're crying and you're making a song, like that's evident to people who, like kids that are just like sitting in their car or not kids or like adults or people at any walk of life. Like after every show we get on the bus and then like me and Matt just play each other songs and our Mm -hmm. whole conversation consists of like, man, this song is great. Oh my God, when they say this line, can you believe how good that line is? And it just brings people such simple joy and it actually is like such worthy work to be doing and you can feel it. Like when I listen to the Big Red Machine record and I hear your imprint of like your specific piano style or like a song like Light Years, I'm just like, oh my God, this is like, I don't know, it's inexpressible. And it's something so worth like mining for and trying to like capture and give to other people. I know what you mean, but it's like when you can actually touch the music somehow, whether it's, and it feels visceral and that's, yeah, that's also probably what you're interested in or one of the reasons why you started to produce and record so much is, is just that weird chase of like trying to, because it's sound, sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's elusive, you know? Yeah, but, um, totally. Um, but anyways, I wish I could come to a concert. <laughs> oh my gosh, I know. There will be and a if, time. There will be a time and a place for it. And if you want to come here and like take apart your your crazy Euro rack guitar pedals and figure it out here, you're welcome to anytime because I, I, I need some instruction. <laughs> yes, I, w- yeah. I would be happy to. Let's, cool. let's do it for sure. Yeah, it'd be fun. Let's get together sometime. Because honestly, I, I didn't ask you enough about your record, so it sounds fucking incredible. Thank um, you. I'm sure cool. I'll, Calvin will be happy to hear that too. Cool. But thank awesome. you so much for talking yeah. to me today. I'm going to scoot. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Julian Baker and Aaron Desner for having such a wonderful chat. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting service and social media channels. We're everywhere. This episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.